Hello and welcome to The Last Standee, a board game podcast coming to you from five different countries across Europe. I'm joined here today by Alexis. Uh, hi, that's me. Alessio. Ciao a tutti. Audrey. Hey everyone. David. Hey, hey. And today I'm your host, Fen. Hello. We're going to be talking about a range of different topics from across the hobby. And today we'll start with introductions in alphabetical order. So, Alexis, you've drawn the short straw. Tell us about yourself. Uh, no problem. Um, my usual nickname is Xelas. Uh, I'm known around the Kingdom Net community as the Grumless Speaker. <laughs> I've, I've mostly been a role playing addict for uh, years now. And first got into the into the board game as seen with um, Kingdom Death, and then uh, later I turned into a holder of Kickstarter, like uh, many of us. Um, what I mostly enjoy is cooperative storytelling games. My first uh, my first love has always been uh, proper role playing games. Okay, great. And uh, next of all, Alessio. Oh yeah, that's me. <laughs> Actually, hi hi everyone. I am Alessio. My nickname usually is Techlist. You usually find me on BGG Board Game Geek, and I'm there mostly on KDM forums. I actually lurk or uh, participate in discussions among board games. I am always been a board game and an RPG enthusiast, but I think I began in 1989. I was just eight in the at the time with Hero Quest. I think like many other. After that, I was mostly a board gamer with Games Workshop's product. I was there in the golden age of Blood Bowl and uh, on Manowar and Necromunda mostly. And I played since second edition of Warhammer Fantasy Battles. Uh, since then, uh, as a modern board gamer, I'm a big Nizia fan. I know that <laughs> this is not... Uh, this is not a shared uh, passion around uh, across the board gamer community, but that's it. I I won a geek citizenship badge, uh, and I happened to win a BGG contest, so they are real. And basically, that's all there's to know about me, except that I am a board gamer dad. I have a, I am a father of two, and I am a programmer as my day job, and that's really all. Okay, great. So next up would be Audrey. Do tell us all about you. Yeah. Hi again, everyone. I'm French. You can hear it, I imagine. And I've been a role-playing gamer for 15 years now. And I started jumping into board games and especially miniature board games four years ago, four and a half exactly now. Uh, what I enjoy most are co-op games and painting the miniatures that come for the games. That's really one of the things that I enjoy the most when a game has pretty minis that I would like to paint and put in my display cabinet. So in the miniature painting communities, you will find me under the nickname of Millennia with two L's. And I think that's the main for me. Okay, all right. So David, do spill. Yeah, hey, hey. So basically, um, I started with uh, the role playing and board games like when I was 14 years old. I started with uh, Warhammer Fantasy and uh, played a lot of different board games, tabletop games and role playing games. Um, most of the time I stick with uh, role playing games. I met my wife through the <laughs> role playing game hobby, which is not that often, I think. <laughs> and uh, yeah. I got into Kingdom Death like two years ago. Um, 
I saw like all those pretty miniatures online and was thinking like, what the hell is that game? And yeah, since then I ended up in the board game community. I'm admin and uh, moderator of several subreddits and discords. I'm more like the community guy in the background. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Okay, and that just leaves me. My name's Finn. Some of you may be a bit more familiar with me, especially if you uh, have listened to the Great Game Hunters podcast or through uh, my Patreon, which is very heavily Kingdom Death-based. Uh, I first got into miniatures through a copy of Hero Quest owned by my grandfather. And from there, I picked up a copy of Warhammer Quest back in 2008, where before it became super grail-like and hard to get. Um, and I've been an on-and-off miniatures painter since about 2011, 2012, I think. So yeah, that's that's me. Um, it's I think it's time to get into our topic. So the way the format of this podcast is going to be is uh, each of us is going to bring a topic to the table. We're going to talk a bit about it and discuss and then move on to the next topic. So it's going to be kind of punchy about a few different things. With today, we are starting with Alexis, uh, who's going to be talking about Townfolk Tussle. Since most of us are very familiar with Kingdom Death, Townfolk Tussle is, is a pretty good topic to start our podcast, I think. So it is uh, upcoming on Kickstarter, uh, starting on October the 20th by uh, Panic Roll. Most of us gave it a try so far, and I think that uh, the entire podcast really enjoyed what we've seen. It's a boss battler with a 30s cartoon style. Think Popeye, or more recently, the video game Cupheads. A very uh, cartoony, old-style uh, sort of artwork that I think looks absolutely beautiful. And it uses the same sort of gameplay that Kingdom Death pioneered, but in my opinion, it is distilled and refined into um, something that is much more readily enjoyable. The rule set is extremely crisp and clear. So in the game, each player incarnates a different colorful character with two abilities and four stats. And the game is split into a taunt phase where they buy randomized equipment and a fight phase against a bigger boss with an AI deck that is then used to, to control the monster. Where the game really set itself apart for me, I think, is that it gives each player a sort of mini quest during the combat phase to accomplish during the fight to get a little reward. While the game is cooperative, some of them can be slightly antagonizing between the player, but in a in a friendly way, without breaking the, the game, but it makes every fight different and more interesting, I feel. Uh, for example, one player might want to never be targeted in a fight or be targeted a certain number of time, or it, they, uh, they might have to cause environmental damage to their allies or to the boss. It really helps making each fight against one of those boss extremely different from the other. Uh, and if you combine that with the different playable character, the fact that each boss has uh, four difficulty level, it makes the game surprisingly replayable, even in the current demo state on a tabletop simulator with only four bosses. Every time I played, the, the slight differences in, co in combination made each fight feel very unique and fun. Fan is the one that uh, brought the game up. I gotta say that, that you had a very good eye in bringing this. Uh, Tantford Tussle feel like someone looked at Kingdom Death, 
gutted anything superfluous and left out a refined version of it. It's a game that you really might want to play regularly with friends, but it's also a game that I could see myself picking up, explaining to people, and within 20 minutes uh, get to play with people that have never played any kind of a complicated board game. I think that's a pretty good introduction to uh, allow people to, to chime in on it. I I think you've nailed it really with what, what makes this so good. On top of the aesthetic, which for those of you who aren't familiar with Cuphead and uh, the less well-known Bendy and the Ink Machine, it's a kind of retro Disney-esque 1920s-ish animati- animation aesthetic. But it has a very dark kind of undertone. The characters are a bit sort of odd and twisted, but not in ways that you would be particularly concerned about, kind of like a Hanna-Barbera, Wile E. Coyote, Warner Bros. kind of way, sort of a, a bit more violent and, and dark than the more modern children's cartoons are, but still, in my opinion, at least, uh, something you could play with like a young teenager, no problem at all. And the other part I think that is so good is, yeah, they, as you said, they've cut everything superfluous off this. It reminds me in some ways of Fireteam Zero. Fireteam Zero, which I will talk about at some point in this podcast, is a um, cooperative miniatures horde-style game where they've cut everything you don't need off it entirely. And it's such a distilled, um, simple experience. The AI in Fireteam Zero is really dumb, like really, really dumb, but it doesn't matter in that experience. It is perfect for the way the game works here. The monsters, sorry, the ruffians, to give them their proper name, are um, not as as uh, reactive and complex as the Kingdom Death ones, but are still expressed so cleanly and so well that each one feels different. Uh, and the order you encounter them in, even it interacts a bit and changes the way they behave. So all of that on top of the cartoon aesthetic, on top of everything else, and the fact that it's being offered uh, in what seems to be a fairly compact fashion, from what I understand, they're talking about putting out the game and maybe some stretch goals, but they haven't really confirmed on that and not really sprawling it any further. Just like, here it is, let's go. Yeah, one thing one thing I like to add is uh, that the developers of Panic Raw uh, are really engaged with the community. That's one thing I really appreciate, especially after our like collective experience with Kingdom Death. <laughs> it's really, really good that they uh, are actually on the Discord, the community Discord, and yeah, just engage with their community and talk with them. And they are collecting a lot of feedback, so I have a really good feeling that the game will be really polished and well done once it's, when it's ready to hit, hit the Kickstarter. A pretty good change from some other games. Yeah. One thing I really enjoy with the aesthetics is it makes me think of Wallace and Gromit or Sean the Sheep, the spin-off. And I think that even for beginner miniature painters, these will be easy to paint. You can just put color on them and they will be great. You don't have to overwork them or just to even work them to make them stand out on the table. Yeah, they reminded me of the um, uh, the uh, Stuffed Fables models, which are a soft PVC, but unlike many soft PVC models, because they're very rounded and quite um, cartoony in style, they were absolutely a delight to paint. It is a very short campaign that uh, will amount for four fights and an alternation of fight and town face and fight and town face. I think 
if you are experienced enough, you can do that in an afternoon playing with experienced people. And that is actually great. Uh, the visuals are Cuphead-like. Yes, it's the most direct inspiration. I, I heard them classified as evil Betty Boop cartoons. So since it's fun, I wanted to mention that. Uh, yeah. One of the things that I really enjoyed about the game too was the fact that each item that the uh, the players can equip comes with a really different abilities. They're not just a weapon or some armor. They usually have flavor in their art and their actual abilities. And I think that thanks to the, the randomized shop, even if some items are very specific in their, uh, in their use, you can always have a, a good selection and it also really enhances the replayability. Like each time that you play, you're going to have different loadouts. I, I think that they really did a good job into um, into making the game feel both unique and fun, but also very easy to get into. Like any board game player would just be able to jump into it, even only reading half of the rule set. Like the 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 board game is, I think, very well designed. Yeah, and dice lovers, don't fear. There is still room for dice to ruin everything. Yeah, yeah I'll lose it. <laughs> I, I guess say, you mentioned the gear, it made me think as well. I really appreciate the um, the use of tropes they've put into the characters. So, because a game like this, some games very, they give you a tabula rasa as a character, just kind of you know your standard blank slate, and go here you go, see what direction they develop in here you every character kind of lands within a class um, with a little bit of a twist, which I like. So like Yancey, uh, the blacksmith, is a, kind of a traditional tank type. He's tougher than the others. His gear, initial gear helps him with that. He has abilities that allow him to taunt the uh, the ruffian and keep him focused. Um, then you've got like the Blopsy twins, who are more of a support character. They they, they tend towards helping others rather than really dealing damage themselves. They can do it. And then you've got um, Quintus Binch, best boy, my favorite character. He's a boy scout, evil boy scout, but he's like a he's like a traditional rogue, like a like a thug type. Like every boy scout. Yep. And then there's my other favorite character, old Gram Grams, Granny Melba. She uh, she's a ranged attacker, but I thought it was very cool the way they twisted things. She's she's um, long sighted, far sighted, so she's terrible at accuracy up close because she can't see. So she's encouraged to always keep her distance, and she gets in a lot of trouble when the ruffian gets close to her. Which again goes back to Yancey, who has the ability to sort of pull the ruffian away if it's getting too close, and so she can maneuver better. Uh, of the other characters. Um, Henlo Bulwark, who is a uh, support healer type. Um, there's who's the other one? Who am I forgetting? Oh, there's Fishman. Yes, Norman Fishman, kind of a long, medium, longish range attacking type. A little bit more durable, um, but more more melee based. And oh, there's uh, I've there's Iron Gut as well, who we haven't actually seen the stats for yet. He, um, Iron Gut is a, I think, the corpse of a cow king, from what I've gathered, but I'm speculating here just based on a, a, a screenshot I found. That sounds like a very interesting uh, new character. But yeah, they, they all have a very unique personality, even if they fall into a sort of comfortable uh, archetype. Yeah, they yeah. do. It gives you a nice little 
uh, handle to just sort of get in there and, um, and and understand what might be good and useful for you to get as gear, which I like. And also gives a lot of potential for them to uh, to have expansions going on. You, you could easily like see them releasing a year from now. Here's a new ruffian. Here's some new event cards. Here's a uh, townsfolk who is linked to that ruffian and has some special interactions. Yeah, and since the, the whole game is relatively simple to expand on, I wouldn't even be surprised to see uh, a new map maybe or a new type of uh, of environment with different um, with different turn cards, or just some few changes that can make the uh, the base experience uh, completely different. Like I think that they created a base mold that will be very easy to expand on, and that is already very much replayable. Um, one thing that I really liked is the fact that there's very little need to uh, keep notes. Uh, like your each ruffians, are, each uh, players has their own uh, stats, but it's not something that you need to uh, to keep note in between fight and all of that. It's all based on your inventory. So uh, once again, packing the game back uh, into the box and uh, pulling it uh, out of it and then into the table is extremely easy. I wouldn't even be surprised if making a, a sort of a vignette uh, fight would be uh, like coming with the, the base game since you basically would only need to draw a few equipment and then just jump into it. Yeah, yeah. I just took a quick look to check my notes. Um, it's George Irongut. Uh He appears to be a yeah, deceased like cow king by the look of it, but a living stomach. Uh, I can't get the full details, but his abilities are called Leftovers and Quick Trot. And stat-wise, he seems to have three health and then falls on everything, uh, four, four and minus one. So he's looking a bit kind of middle-ish, but who knows what his gear is going to be like or what his abilities are actually going to do. But it's a very, uh, a bit of a grim-looking piece of a piece of art. Possibly the nastiest looking of all of the characters, which I like. It's, a, it's as I say, it's nasty in a fun way, not in a that's not suitable for kids way. Right. Uh, so before we move on to our next topic, does anyone have anything further they'd like to say beyond the generally gushing? Uh, this is a really great thing. Fantastic game. It's landing 20th of October on Kickstarter, and. Uh, as far as I'm concerned, at least, I would say if you're only going to back one game for the rest of the year, this should be it. And if you're not going to back any games, you might want to have a good look at this and really think if you could at least afford to get like the basic game um, on the Kickstarter. Because one, I love Kickstarter being used by new companies to, to support, you know, as Kickstarter was originally intended. Uh, and two, this is, I think, the biggest uh step forward in the in the cab genre the complex ai boss battler genre uh, and i'm just i my i'm wholeheartedly behind supporting this i'm like get it do it this is this is great you're not going to regret it um yeah the one thing that i would add is that the game is currently as currently a demo on the um, tabletop simulator uh just jump in like it, it costs nothing give it a try and even if you um if you're not planning to back the kickstarter you can at least have a, a few a few games and have a lot of fun with some of your friends so yeah i would recommend you at least try the, the tabletop simulator version it's it's cost nothing as long as you already own tabletop simulator on steam that's just that's assume true. most people do but if you don't all right well we shall move on to our second topic which is alessio's 
and we're going to be talking about a Kingdom Death related topic. We should we'll probably have one of these each episode at least, maybe two, uh, as all of us, if you probably gathered from the introductions, have a fair amount of involvement with um, the game in some fashion or another. Uh, so I believe you want to talk to us uh, about the, uh, it's the butcher that's taken your fancy this, this episode, isn't it? Uh, yeah, actually. Oh, my turn already. Okay. So let's talk about the butcher. It's uh, I chose uh, a subject I know a lot for this first intervention, hoping that uh, I don't uh, screw it that bad. So I apologize in advance for my horrible, horrible Italian accent, and I hope to bring you into the world of Kingdom Death. Now, I want to talk about how the design of a monster conveys a lot of useful information just in the showdown part. Uh, the Butcher is uh, one of the three possible first nemesis you will ever face. Uh, I'll, I assume you know that the other is the Tyrant in uh, People of the Stars campaign. And the third one, uh, well, I leave that as a trivia for you to guess what it is. Uh, now, the Butcher is the first nemesis you will encounter, and it just appears in your settlement. All you know is this small, small piece of text, which tells you that it was something that was so afraid, so scared, that uh, he didn't want to be anymore, and he wore a mask to uh, turn its fear into rage. And this is the basic idea of the Butcher. Of course, the concept of the monster, the visual of the monsters, remember you of uh, slasher movie villains. So, uh, and actually, it, its drop is jig, is kind of the slasher movie villain in which you still find uh, it reappearing over and over again, even if, if you kill it. And of course, there is a debate if there is one butcher or multiple butchers. I'm not to discuss this, and anyway, there are multiple butchers. <laughs> so the important part here is that the core of the monster, uh, or at least my theory is that the monster is a thing afraid, and it's afraid of everything. And you can see it into the design and into how the showdown goes through with your survivors. For example, if you put the AI deck of the butcher, I have it in my hands right now, out of the 21 or so useful AI cards, and four of them are moves, so actually there are 17 AI cards you usually use, 14 of them target as first the closest threat facing. So actually the butcher lashes out with rage at the first target he has near and that he, it identifies as a threat. And so this is, uh, a scared monster who is afraid of everything and uh, just lashes out with rage because that's what a forsaken mask does. Uh, it turns your fear into rage. And that's it. The core of the monster, you can see with, uh, with the other three AI, which are Lantern Anger, Butcher's Roar, a Backhand, that uh, these are variants of the AoE attack, except for possibly Lantern Anger which is, well, the butcher attacks people to the world to get their lanterns or to get their lights. And this is because it is afraid of the dark. You can see in the heart for the cards and for the showdown 
that the butcher just curves the face of its victims and uh, attaches them to lanterns. So to make him company, I, we don't know, possibly we will see with the Henshin Butcher campaign, we will see in the people of the Mirror Stone in the campaigns of death. What we can assume is that the butcher attacks because it's basically afraid of the dark, so it gets to the Lantern Horde, which is a big light in, in the distance. It isn't uh, scared of the presence in there, <laughs> so uh, it's not scared because it's crazy, and uh, it basically attacks all threats that come near. So this is basically what a butcher is at core. Of course, if you go to analyze the rest of the cards, you can see that, uh, well, if you go to the HL deck, basically every location is called Furious. It has a lot of reflex actions. So that's basically the, that conveys the Berserker theme. You have uh, a thing that attacks a lot. You have the 1.3 Forsaker mask that uh, did a very good job of telling you what the Butcher did. Because basically, when you wore a Forsaker mask, you had an additional activation to use in your turn. Now it uh, just focuses on making you uh, crazy and uh, having you leave the settlement at the end of the shutdown. So uh, it's actually not that interesting anymore. It is two aspects of the same characterization. But you can see in the smooth things in the cars that make the butcher showdown so unique. You actually see the butcher is uh, lashing out always with a very poor accuracy at you. So every attack Mm -hmm. is usually fast and it has a four plus accuracy. This basically identifies a monster which uh, which just uh, throws slashes with incredibly incredible velocity, with incredible speed, and uh, doesn't hit a lot because actually accuracy is the most glaring weakness of the butcher. This is is scared, and that's basically my point. I I actually discussed that with. Uh, with the guys here at the podcast. So I, I don't know if they agree completely with that, but it's basically the butcher's geek. Yeah, I um, I really like your analysis of the butcher's cards and sort of personality that is told through those AI and HL cards. Yeah, I've got a bit more to add into the, the, the puzzle. I don't... I, I do agree with what you're saying. Um, I think there's also a lot more to it, and I think we're going to see some more in Campaigns of Death. But um, back on the store, when I think it was the resin was released, they added some more information. Um, the Butcher's not just like a standalone kind of thing. It's a... Um, it's to quote the text, the Butcher is the remains of Forsaker, swallowed by long years of wrestling with the primal rage that gave him power. Nothing remains of the man, just a mess of flesh clinging to the insides of the Forsaker's armor, animated by a nihilistic fury to destroy on the road to oblivion. The Butcher collects the lanterns and skinned faces of his victims, a perversion of the humanity that echoes inside its near-hollow armor. Now, um, Forsakers are... They're survivors, so they're the, like protagonist um, player pieces um, and you start getting towards them actually through the courage track 
So at the top end of the courage track, you have the see the truth event. And when you look at that in the um, rule book, you'll see the greatest courage is achieved when past and future are abandoned. The void that remains is a dark, endless well of strength, fear and pain, are your nourishment and you will feast. And uh, amongst the various bits and pieces here, it basically you recall suddenly recall meeting a strange masked man who for a moment opened your second eyelids. What you saw filled your mouth with a taste of your own death. And there's a whole sort of things that give you abilities and stuff. And uh, there's a lot of heavy references to the butcher or to forsakers right in there, which um, is, is kind of interesting in itself. Uh, forsakers themselves are those who lose or give up on their grasp on sanity and trade for unbridled power and stamina. They see nothing but suffering and pitiful struggle around them. Incapable of compassion, they channel their despair into unchecked, furious, berserk state that makes the forsaker dangerous, dangerous to friend or foe alike. The forsaker has lost so much that his perspective has been skewed beyond repair. Um, yeah, that's a repeat. Accordingly, they abandoned their own humanity to better suit the struggle that they see around them. And uh, the fu their fury is so consuming and violent, they often fix their weapons with a rope or chain to their hands in anticipation of succumbing to their succumbing to their mindless rage dreams. So yeah, they are the butchers. Like seem to be a further evolution along the Forsaker chain. The Forsaker, if I understand correctly, was originally going to be one of the playable classes for Kingdom Death Labyrinth, but I'm not 100% certain on that because it's a bit lost in the annals of time. This is interesting because uh, there's uh, another card linked to the butcher in a way, which is the butcher, the butcher's Mandy. Actually, I don't know what is the pronounce of this, so <laughs> I just call it Mandy. It is basically another way to nail the point, which is uh, as uh, as you increase your insanity, you get faster. So that's it. You get you get rage and rage as uh, as long as you descend into a pit of insanity. Uh, and of course, this links the ba the butcher in a way to the Silver City, and there has been a lot of fan theories about that. And we, it's probably uh, meet for another article, but uh, it is very interesting how the point is continuously delivered and nailed and nailed again. I I like what you pointed out that the, the Forsaker are sort of further along the crush track that where the survivors can get to, because the Butcher itself is sort of a perversion of courage. Then, uh, since it's it's cowardly, since the Butcher is cowardly, I think that there's a nice symmetry here to to see and to examine. Personally, what I really like about the Butcher as a as a nemesis, uh, more more on the the gameplay side is the fact that, in my opinion, it's the best nemesis of the People of the Lantern, because it really perfectly nails what a nemesis should be, in my opinion. When you read... Yeah. When you... As a fight, it's great. As a, as a sort of a challenge and a difficulty check. But I think that also just the feel of um, pulling it out of the box reading the cards and being like, okay, we have to fight this thing. We've only fought like uh, White Lion so far. You read the Berserker card that is like, it draws two AI cards a turn. That's a massive shock. It seems impossible to do. And what I really like about the Butcher is that it hides the fact that it's not that hard. For example, it uh, reshuffles its it location at every turn. And when you first read that, you think that's just added difficulty, but instead it's helping you along. It's, it's very good that it reshuffles its uh, hit location deck. It is also has a very low accuracy and you don't really 
notice how just two points of accuracy make a massive difference in a game when you first start. And so a mountain that seems impossible to defeat at the first at the start of the game is actually not that hard and i think that adam really nailed uh the feel of that fight and what i really like also is that at the end of the game when you fight, fight the level three it is that same shock uh, all over again with Invincible and with the uh, the second AI card. And now, I don't know if we want to tell the solution to the trivia, but the third nemesis you could face uh, as, a, as your first nemesis, if, of course, the Slenderman. If you happen to draw the Slender Blight uh, settlement event early, you're fucked. Yeah, yeah, you're in trouble. That thing is no slouch. I imagine we'll be talking about that at some point because there's a lot of interesting things. I'm pretty aware of time. We try not to be too long in each of these subjects, but there's a number of things I'd still want to talk about on The Butcher because it's a very interesting monster. Yeah, I oh, first of all, I really appreciate, like, I, I will say of the three Nemesis monsters in the core game, this is the only one that I would call more or less perfect or as perfect as any construct can be because nothing is 100% perfect in games. It's, yeah, like, it's like the first gate. It's the first check that turns up and it goes, hey, how are you doing? Can you beat this? And a lot of people don't manage it on their first try. And having it come early enough, at least it's not too discouraging. Um, It's also the most rewarding fight. But what I love most of all about this is when you get past the initial sort of aesthetic of the model and the bits and pieces and everything, apart from a mystery that I'm going to leave hanging for people, which is butchers can teleport. They teleport using lanterns. They're also, uh, there's a uh, scenario, uh, and I can answer this like on the debate of whether there's one butcher or lots of butchers. There's almost certainly more than one butcher, but I think each individual butcher is way harder to kill than you actually think they generally teleport away to get away when they're in a very bad state. The uh, death blow resolves that with a an, with a different matter, um, as does the maximum roll on the rewards chart, where you actually, I believe, get to explode the butcher into pieces. But uh, they they do have some kind of mystical abilities. The lantern frenzy card has them teleporting into it, uh, all of which builds into and you mentioned it briefly, the fact that these the Butcher is basically your archetypal 1980s slasher villain. Specifically, Jason Voorhees from the Friday the 13th series, but also uh, who, who Jason Voorhees is very well known for teleporting all over the place and being in ridiculous places where he shouldn't be and suddenly he's there. But also Michael Myers from uh, Halloween, uh, who is all, both of these are mortal men who through events have become immortal, indestructible, terrifying, ridiculous pieces of nonsense. I remember watching Halloween H2O and seeing Michael Myers be attacked with a chainsaw and having it spark off his arms and thinking, what on earth is going on here? How is this interesting? Um, But yeah, and and I think it's worth noting that in both of these cases, uh, if you take a look, um, the linking thing that for Jason Voorhees, who only turns up, I think, in the second movie onwards, um, and Michael Myers is they both wear white masks. In Jason's case, it's a white hockey mask. In um, Michael Myers' case, it is well, William painted um, white, most famously. But the butcher, the Forsaker mask, is also a white mask. And uh, as you learn, it's made from a face. 
You can actually construct one yourself if you meet the level three butcher. Under certain circumstances, one of your survivors will peel their own face off and fashion it into a forsaken mask, which is like, you know, very interesting and cool. And a lot of what I liked about the AI and I thought an alternate take on looking on it is the butcher. If you're not a threat, it won't attack you at all. It'll stand over you and menace you, which is very much like the slasher movie villain who attacks anything that's sort of up and running and could possibly do stuff but then you know when people fall on the floor and start panicking a bit especially if they're the final girl it'll menace over them and give them a chance to get away and i thought that's like really good and i do give adam some like flack at times but when it comes to the butcher i don't think uh, outside of i don't like the change to the forsaken mask but outside of that i think everything here is just this is what he should be doing when designing a nemesis monster alongside the slender man just just the best and the tyrant that's the best three in my opinion there's just one small thing i would like to add uh bury the chopper which <laughs> is like a pretty good yeah i feel it's like was an inspiration for it as well like with the mask and the weapon of choice for the for the butcher Oh, from Full Metal Alchemist, yeah. yes. It could well be a reference also, certainly. I never heard of Barry the Chopper because I am um, decidedly not uh, not particularly into anime. Um, visually, he looks like he looks like the Butcher, a lot like the Butcher. I haven't seen this before, and yeah, I can see it. Yeah, I also have to say that Bat- Butcher as a name uh, has been made popular by Diablo series, so actually Butcher is a pretty common name and it could have been an inspiration either direct or indirect both to the Full Metal Alchemist anime and to well all the rest of the Butchers. I think it's best to move on given even though this is a topic we probably talk about more because we now have Audrey with a section on hobby stuff and I'm very much looking forward to this I believe Audrey's going to be talking about the um, uh, beginner's kit and what you should do when you're starting out painting because it's a question that uh, we get quite often take it away yes thank you I I've put together a list of some basic stuff to get started. I haven't put anything fancy like no airbrush, for instance, even though it's an item that we fast hear about. But I've really laid out the basics. So the first basic tool that new painters need, of course, is paint. No joke, Sherlock. <laughs> so most Miniature painting brands have beginner paint sets. You will find between 8 to 20 paints in these sets, and they will lay out the foundation that you will use for all of your painting. So major brands that have these sets would be Vallejo with their model color basic USA set, which is one of the most complete sets. The Scale 75 Smoke Rider set, which comes with a miniature, which is a good point if you don't really want to work on your own miniatures first, but want to have one to try out things first. The Army Painter starter set, which comes with one brush, which gives another advantage, another value in extra in this set. Of course, you will also get a set from Games Workshop and Reaper in the USA is very easy to find in the UK as well. In Europe, it's a bit less available. 
since these sets are a bit um, limited in the amount of paint, don't hesitate to pick one, two, and up to five colors on top of that, and to really complete what you have and what you will start from. If you are painting miniatures from board games that have lots of texture, getting a set of washes, mostly a black, brown, will be a very good addition, and it will help you get some depth in your miniatures. So you will end up with 20 to 30 bottles of paints, and that's really the essential that you will need. You don't, you can mix. You can always mix more colors from these ones, and that is enough. You don't really need to have a full collection of paints when you start. The second thing that you will need will be primers, because on miniatures, it's easier to get the paint to stick if you prime your miniature first. It's possible to paint without primer, but it takes a bit experience and getting used to it. Generally, priming works in two ways. The first one is colored primer. Like if your miniature will be in majority green, you prime it green and it will save you some time painting green. The second thing is if you have miniatures with different colors and no colors which really dominate the color scheme, you can use primers in the black and white um, side of the chroma. For these ones, there are different techniques, different habits, and it's up to you to decide if you will want to paint on black, on gray, on white. It really, it really is something that you will discover on your own and based on your habits, how the paints that you use have coverage, because if you use paints that don't cover a lot, it can be hard to use black primer. Or you can do something that is called zenithal priming, which is black, with white sprayed on top of it. This will help you see the volumes of the miniature and see where you can paint lighter colors, where you can paint darker colors. Good example of black primers is the Games Workshop Chaos Black. It's one of the best black primers among the miniature brands. For gray and white, usually Tamiya is one of the primers that is really that has good press, and it seems to be good when some when some other whites can end up a bit chalky and make some texture in the miniature. Depending on where you live and the weather, primer in cans, in spray cans like these ones, can be sometimes temperamental. They don't like when it's too hot or maybe too, too warm. Uh, sorry, that's the same. <laughs> too dry, I meant. And so, if you live in one such place, you may want to use brush on primer. So this is primer that you will just brush on the miniature. You don't need to reach full coverage uh, because the primer is just here to help the paint catch. So you don't need your miniature to be fully of the color of the brush and primer. And three examples will be the Vallejo polyurethane primer. So again, you can pick black, gray or white, depending on what you will like. Um, the Steiner Rays, which is available in the US, and the Steiner Rays is also available in Europe and, the, and some other parts of the world as the MIG One-Shot Primer by Amomig. 
So you have your choice of primers. Now, what else will you need? Of course, brushes. You don't need five different size of brushes. Usually a size two and a size zero are enough. You can use a size two as your workhorse to do all your base coating work, to do some detail if the tip is really sharp, and you can have a zero to do some detail. You don't need to go to sizes lower than zero because with these smaller brushes, you have a risk that the paint will dry on it before you can apply it on the miniature. Ideally, these brushes should be Kolinsky type, so these are uh, weasel hair. And some common brands will be uh, watercolor brands that you can get in art stores. So you will have the Winsor & Newton Series 7, Da Vinci Maestro Series 10, the Raphael 8404 or 8408. They have different dimensions that you might or might not prefer. You can also get more synthetic brushes as workers if you want to save your best brushes. You can also get synthetic brushes to apply the primer because it's um, more chemically um, dangerous for the bristles of your brushes. So you can say, oh, I'm going to pick a two, two whichever currency you're using, a synthetic brush for my primer. It's perfect. Also, a very good thing is that one of the first techniques that you may use is dry brushing. And one tip is that makeup brushes, and especially eyeshadow brushes, make very good dry brushes because they have just the right stiffness of brushes for this. It's really a great tool to have for this application. If you're getting Kolinsky or other natural hair brushes, if you can pick a soap, a brush soap, that will be helpful to get them last longer. So you have one very common brush soap, which is the master's brush soap, and it's really cheap and it will last you for years. I paid mine, I think seven euros three years ago, and I still have a good a time with it. Next item will be the palette. You have two types of palettes in the miniature painting. You have the dry palette and the wet palette. If you're going for a dry palette, you will just pick anything to put your paint on it and to thin the paint on it. That's going to be some sheet of aluminum, a tile, whatever you want, a plate maybe. You're really free to get whatever you want. If you decide to pick a wet palette, there are lots of different ones, both from the art commercial art companies and from the miniatures companies. So the Masterson's wet palette from the arts community, uh, in the miniature community, there are one, there is one from Army Painter, there is one from Red Rose Games, for instance, to give two of the biggest ones. They all come with everything you need, the sponge, the paper, the box. It's up to you to like the paper or not. Some people will like papers that are more um, translucent to water, that leave a bit more water through, some that leave less water through. So you will have to try a bit and find what you like more. The wet palette will be really useful, especially in the summer when it's 35 degrees outside and 32 in your painting room and that your paint will dry very fast. It will help keep it wet for a few hours. Then I'm going 
one other item that you will need is for when you've done painting. You're going to need varnish, especially if the miniatures that you are painting are for gaming. Because while you play, you will touch them with your fingers. We have some grease on our fingers. We have some other components which are a bit acidic, and it can damage the paint. So again, just as the spray cans for primer, Varnish spray cans are often sensitive to weather. If you're spraying varnish in an environment that's a bit too dry, it can leave a white mist on the miniature. So it's something to be wary of. Again, every miniature brand has varnishes. So it will be up to you, again, to find which one you like. And I don't have a special one to recommend because I varnish with my airbrush. And so I don't know for sp varnish spray cans. Um, I can chime in there, actually. Yeah. Okay, so I've tried a number of different different ones. Um, Games Workshop, unfortunately, I don't think do a pure matte one anymore, but their satin is very yeah. good um, and quite resistant. My all-time top two are uh, the Vallejo matte varnish, um, fantastic. And Tester's Dull Coat, which uh, now I'm in Sweden, I have trouble getting. So I use uh, Vallejo's and I actually use those while painting as well, to because um, well, I paint with a, a bunch of um, they're more resin, more translucent paints, and they can get quite shiny while I'm painting. So I tend to like apply a coat of this varnish partway through. And it's great that it's in a spray can. Um, so it doesn't I don't have to like clean out my airbrush and break my flow. I just spray it and then dry it quick with a hairdryer and it goes super matte. So those are my two recommendations, uh, Vallejo's or Tester's Dull Coat. I would be very careful with the army painter sprays. Um, I have found they are incredibly sensitive to humidity incredibly so um i have and it's nothing is more frustrating than finishing a model and spraying it and suddenly it's frosted white and it's possible to save that but sometimes you just have to strip the whole model and start again so you know big one there i uh, be careful with army painter varnishes and the real trick is if you're not sure about the weather or anything have yourself like a test model or a, a test sheet or something you can spray on and you look to see if it's frosting, even like just a crimp crumpled up bit of paper with some paint on it, just to check if it, everything's okay and right. If you're not sure, um, do what Audrey does and use airbrushing for varnishes and even for your base coats. Because you know, airbrushing is what I use during the winter here in Sweden because it's too cold for um, spray cans, except in our garage. Anyway, there we go. Yeah, Carry thank on. you. Thank you for the compliment. So as Sven said, he mentioned matte varnish. I think Testors is being discontinued, by the way. I need to check again. Uh, matte varnish has the advantage of not adding reflections on top of the paint job that you did. So it's really going to show what you painted. It's going to slightly distort the colors, but really much less than gloss varnish or satin varnish. You can, though, apply gloss or satin varnish up to what you like on metallic parts painted with metallic paints because that's going to bring them sh shine back that matte varnish can kill. Yeah. And then there are two other categories of tools that you need if your minis are not pre-assembled. In board games, many miniatures come already pre-assembled, so you really don't have much work to do. 
The first category is gap filling because that's something that you can still do with these pre-assembled miniatures. So you will find sometimes gaps. For example, if an arm was glued on a torso, you might find some gaps around the shoulder. So you can use you can use lots of different putties to fill the gaps. Two of the most common are milliput and green stuff. They are workable in a different way. You will need to use water for it not to stick to your fingers or tool if you're using milliput, but Vaseline is much more convenient for green stuff. So it's going to work a bit in a different way. And these two pastes are great for big gaps. So in board games, you don't often encounter big gaps unless the miniatures come unassembled and have some uh, misfits. In board games, miniatures will often have smaller gaps. And for this, what I love is the Vallejo plastic putty. It's really, it's a bit, it's a paste, almost like toothpaste, and you can really apply it and push it into the small crannies in the miniatures and it dries quite fast. So you can see the result well very fast and see if it retracts and if you need to add just a bit more. To apply these paints, you can find shapers in steel or some kind of silicone brushes with a, with a fine tip that will help you push the putties and smooth them out on your miniature. And finally, the latest category of tools are the ones that are for miniatures that come unassembled. So you will need nippers, which will help you cut the different parts of the plastic sprue, which is a kind of frame that will um, help keep the pieces together while they ship. You can pick any nippers uh, from any miniature brand, of, even from model kits. If you find a shop nearby that sells train or planes model kits, this nipper will be completely great for miniature painting. And the last tool is glue, of course. You will find three major categories of glues that we can use, and these depend on the material and or the size of what you're gluing. If you're painting, and if you're owning miniatures that are made of HIPS, that's for the polystyrene that comes in sprue, for example, the miniatures of Kingdom Death, but also of the Marvel Crisis Protocol um, skirmish game or Games Workshop miniatures, plastic glue will be a great choice. The plastic glue, it in fact, in fact, is not a glue, but a solvent, and it will help dissolve just a bit the plastic, and you will chemically weld the pieces together. So you will have something that will hold very well. So if you made a mistake while gluing your miniatures, it will be hard to separate the pieces together. But if your mini falls, it might not break. The second type of glue is the cyanoacrylate, also called super glue. Uh, this one will glue everything. It works for plastic miniatures, it works for metal, it works for resin miniatures, so you can use it for everything. But if you drop your miniature on the floor, for instance, the glue is very brittle and so can break. But if you messed up gluing your miniatures, you can put it in the fridge for a few hours and then the glue will break. 
if you are gluing some big pieces together, you can use double components epoxy instead of uh, super glue or instead of plastic glue if applicable. And this will really make a stronger bond, but I will only recommend it for big pieces as it's a bit less convenient to use. So that's it for the toolkit. Uh, if you have any question, we will uh, be sure to check comments and help you. If anyone has any question here or has anything else to add? Um, I, I, I'm less, uh, less good of a painter as a you or, or fan. Um, so I, I might have a few questions, uh, but it would probably necessitate for, uh, it would probably be another topic all of its own, uh, but what kind of um, beginner miniature would you, uh, would you recommend for someone who wants to first paint uh, something that is easy, but that also allow them to have a, diff a few different um, type of, of highlights or, or techniques to try and, uh, and train on? I would say it depends uh, a bit on one or two things. Uh, if you're just looking at a few minis to try out things, I would go to Reapers because they really have a wide range of items. Uh, lots of things are suited for D&D, for fantasy worlds, and you will really find anything. You want an old bear, you will get it. You want an adventurer with a sword, you will get it. And you won't be stuck with 10 times the same mini as uh, what which could happen with a board game like Zombicide, for instance. So I think, yeah, if you really want one, two, three, for five minis which are all different from each other that would be a good choice or there are some board games that will fit like fan mentioned uh, earlier the stuffed fables which will help you learn to manipulate your paints on smooth miniatures and learn to spread your paints on them yeah yeah um i'd also say uh, it's worth um, considering it because it's very convenient, easy to get your hands on. Would be some of the Snap Fit Games Workshop models, which are in a reasonable um, heroic scale um, and price. And uh, yeah, reasonable price. And also, just go there, look for a model you like. Same on the Reaper website. Say, I want to paint this. Have it speak to you. Get it, and don't be afraid. If you mess up, there are ways of stripping paint off and starting again. And the models are very robust, and you can do that quite a few times. So not a problem at all. Yeah, you can always strip and restart. Speaking of, I wanted your opinion on airbrushes. The airbrush, it's something that is mentioned all the time. And it's an investment to have a good airbrush setup. It's around 100 euro, 120 dollars, something like that. So if you are not sure you will like mini painting, don't jump on an airbrush right away. Agree with that. Absolutely. Um, to, to add on to it, I do a little bit of airbrushing. I have immense problems with maintenance and upkeep of airbrushes. And that is not something that I find anyone covers very well, like within the miniature community, and partly because every airbrush is, is different. I mean, my current airbrush at the moment is out of commission because I dismantled it to clean it, put it back together, and now it's not um, propelling the air out past the needle. So I have to take the whole thing apart again and try and figure out what's going wrong and um, 
each and every airbrush is sort of a little bit different. So uh, don't be put off by it because the um, the number of uses for airbrushes is incredible. You can use it for um, priming um, when the weather's bad. You can use it for controlled painting. You can use it in the way that um, Trent Dennison does, which he basically uses the airbrush for almost all of his jobs. He's a fantastic miniature painter. You can catch him on Instagram uh, under Big Dino. You can see his painting in progress on YouTube under uh, Trent Dennison. And um, you know, he uses it for almost everything. And and there's also a whole bunch of, um, of of painters who use their airbrushes as their finishing. Like you can get a smooth finish with lots of glazes, but you can also do the same thing with clever work with an airbrush. So it's an amazing tool, but it will be frustrating. I think you're thinking of Sergio Calvio as um, an example. Sergio's definitely an example as well for finishing, yes. Yeah. I have two airbrushes. One is von uh, Hardan Steinbeck Colani, which is like a workhouse horse. You can pretty much put any paint in it and it will just work. And it's very easy to clean. And then I have Finity CR Plus, which is like, you have the consist uh, consistency of your paint a little bit wrong and it will clog immediately. They are like totally different tools, but they are doing a proper job most of the time, both of, both of them. But I prefer the Colani for priming and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, again, like any tool, it's trial and error and discovering which one you like more. But with an airbrush, it's a bit more an investment. So trying out is more costly than, oh, I'm going to pick five pots of this brand of paint and try it out. That yeah. makes sense, yeah. Yeah, I'd say um, the biggest piece of advice, though, is just don't be afraid. Everybody starts somewhere. You'll often see um, people on Instagram put up their first model um, and also... Uh, put up, you know, some of their, their latest pieces to show the difference. And, uh, you know, I, I will I will say their first model almost always looks kind of like garbage because that's where you start. This isn't a magic thing that you sit down and uh, and produce wonderful pieces out of nowhere. It is hard work. It is time. It is practice and refining and finding your own style, your own space. And you can follow guides and things, but uh, sometimes they're a bit bewildering when you're starting out. I think Serestos are very good. For, for learning and is painting Buddha. He still has stuff, although he stopped making new ones. They're on YouTube, but uh, just 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 don't worry about it. You, you just make your mistakes and you try again. You know they say ten thousand hours, and as uh, you know, you can quote Bob Ross. There's nothing but happy little accidents. You know, and enjoy yourselves. You don't have to get better. If you like what you do, keep doing it. Absolutely. I am currently, and it sat right on the table in front of me, painting my Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles pledge, which arrived a couple of weeks ago, and I'll be talking about in the next episode. The models are PVC, and there's, uh, I don't know, over 100 of them, maybe 200 of them, and I've just gone, all right, I don't I don't have time to paint all of these up. I've got other things I need to do for, for other people and for myself, so I'm just putting base colors on all of them, and that's it, blocking them in, bit of back, black lining, to increase the cartoony look and they're going straight in the box ready for play and you know what still looks great on the table absolutely happy with them all right so uh before we move on to the next topic which is my topic i'm just going to answer a uh a, a thing that alessio said back with the butcher you weren't sure how to pronounce um the the word yes for the butcher the uh, mind god item it's a mendy um, it's actually misspelt in Kingdom Death. 
Um, it should be M-H-N-D-I, but it's spelled M-H-E-N-D-I. You've seen them before. They are the intricate paintings you'll see on people's uh, hands, I think in Hindu in particular. So, but yes, it's a style. And yeah, Mendy, which is very simple and straightforward. Given the misspelling, you could be forgiven for pronouncing them Mahendi as well. Really, you know, that's up to you. It depends how you pronounce farting arts. <laughs> yes, yes. Those mighty secret farting arts. Yeah. <sighs> Own your mistakes. Right. Uh, okay, so I wanted to talk about something I've been playing a fair bit recently um, because it came out digitally on Steam. And that is the game of Woodland Might and Right. That is Root, which I think by now, just about everyone in the board game community should be familiar with it in one way or another. But to give a quick synopsis, it is a fantasy war game with asymmetric factions based in a cartoony children's woodlands um, forest. Uh, the ruling faction, the Eerie Dynasty, which is a bunch of um, populist uh, bureaucrats, more or less, who promised the earth and then failed to deliver and get disposed, were the original rulers. They've recently been overthrown with the arrival of the Marquis de Cat, or my kitty cat. Uh, the Marquis uh, brings with, with them industrialization and a mighty force of well-armed cats, and, and the Marquis is currently ruling the forest, which is not really sitting well with the Eerie Dynasty or equally not sitting well with the actual inhabitants of the forest who are represented by the Woodland Alliance. There are a bunch of bunnies, rabbits, foxes, uh, wolves, raccoons, badgers, beavers, owls, and so on. They're just the main populace. They make up the third faction. And then the most clever faction of all within the game is the final one, which is the Vagabond, who isn't really bothered with the sense of struggle and plight and power games um, is actually just a, basically an RPG adventurer. Um, and it's like, suddenly they've taken a war game, they've made three asymmetric factions, and then they've taken a fourth faction and put in this 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 little uh, plucky little animal who just goes around doing quests and diving in ruins and kind of flicks back and forth between who they're allying with as they seek to gain the most points. Um, I got to say, this is a great example of a game where aesthetic matters. Um, to put it simply, if Root did not look the way it looks, I would never have bothered playing it. Because it evoked to me like Red Wall and Watership Down and Animals of Farthing Wood and all sorts. Um, it reminded me of, of, um, of that. And the artwork is genuinely one of the most endearing things and not just the art with the component quality as well incredibly cute pieces but uh, despite all of that cuteness laid on top it is vicious it is a incredibly well done um almost ecology because if you play the game each you, you gradually learn how each faction plays and for, the marquee is like one of the easiest to get into because the marquee plays much like a classic 4x faction of um, expand exploit explore exterminate kind of thing um, with i build buildings my buildings make troops my other buildings make gear um, and I have a hospital, it's, and I make resources. It's very straightforward. But then you get to the Eerie Dynasty, and they only have one building type. They're roosts that do 
crafting and produce troops and produce points, but you have to manage them basically by programming them. Um, which essentially you build a big long logic program and you have to follow it every turn. If you cannot follow a single step, the whole faction collapses, falls into turmoil. Your current leader is disposed, deposed and disposed of probably. And you have to pick a new one to bring in. And that kind of changes how you have to play. So throughout the whole of that game, you're looking at it, trying to figure out when can I afford to fall into turmoil? Then in contrast, the, um, the Wooden Alliance, most famously were described by um, uh, Shut Up, Sit Down, as like a virus. You know, they're like, they fight with guerrilla warfare and pamphlets and call in sympathy from the locals. You stamp them out and they get stronger and come back. Uh, it's it's really enjoyable. I was wondering how much, um, how if, if any of you guys here have had much of a chance to play Root or at least look at it or anything like that. I have looked at it a fair bit since I was um, looking forward to to try the the actual RPG that they pushed off um, on Kickstarter recently. Uh, since the artwork is, as you said, uh, absolutely delightful. Yeah, it was around this time last year, November last year, because I backed it. Yeah, um, I have not yet had the chance to play the game since I don't have any uh, anybody who, uh, who was interested to to play it at the moment. But uh, I'm, I, I was very interested to it because I love uh, asymmetrical um, board games in general. I, I, I like the fact that each faction that it's very different gameplay, and um, yeah, it, it looked really interesting. Uh, but I have not yet had the chance to play it. I love my Hyrule Dynasty. Actually, move by decree, and uh, and the battle by decree is the most challenging part of the game. Here I saw the game and my brain was like, oh, and when I saw it was not co-op and I was, oh. <laughs> there is actually uh, some co-op, but you have to kind of get the clockwork expansion, which has just come out recently that allows for automated control of, of opponents. There is one in the main box. You can play a game with Marquis the Cat on running on automatic um, AI and you can play cooperatively against that or cooperatively against a bunch of others. Uh, there is actually also, you can play team play. Um, there, there are cards that cause people to to um, join up and have to play together uh, in a coalition. So it's not fully co-op, but it does have some options for that. You just declared a war on my wallet. I hope you know that. Well, I'm very sorry about that. Um, I will say, now we're getting on to Wallet, the one major thing I think with Root is it's not just a one and done kind of thing. You're not, if you buy the main game, unless you're of a very particular personality type and playing group who like the solved game and then go on to the diplomacy and everything. And, and, and it's very interesting to get to that state. Eventually, you, you might get tired with the factions um, because uh, this, you know, and I, I'm going to get a little critical just now because I find that the factions, some of them are very limiting in what you need to do to start. And if you can't do that start, you're in a lot of trouble. Like the Marquis de Cat has a very limited um, direction on what they should do at the start of the game and then while they have a wide choice in where they go eventually their games always devolve down to either trying to win through dominance which is where you control three of the same um, 
uh, same clearing, same like fox clearings, or by crafting. If you try and win just through points normally, the Marquita Cat can't manage it. So it can feel a bit kind of frustrating, uh, at least for me, because I like variety. Uh, the nice thing about that is once you get tired with the Marquis, you can go on and play the Woodland Alliance. But again, the Woodland Alliance has a very similar playstyle with every game. You want to get your base down in the second turn. If you don't manage that, you're in trouble. And then from there, you kind of just spread out, gradually protect your main base, get your other bases established. And eventually, if people leave you unchecked, you explode all over the place with a giant pile of uh, sympathy. And the whole Woodland goes, oh, well, we like the green guys best. Um, I think the Eerie Dynasty, that's the faction I have the most trouble playing. I think it has the highest skill floor. It can be very frustrating um, when you're learning, um, unless you're great at like logic programming. But I think it also has an incredibly high ceiling. I, I've seen people win games without ever having hit turmoil. They have that level of knowledge and understanding and, and momentum, which is incredible. But I think the Vagabond overall, is the, the the character I keep coming back to um, because you get three different vagabonds. Uh, one of them starts off as a tinker and is more focused on crafting. One of them um, has is the ranger and has a crossbow and a sword to start with. And the other one, the raccoon, is the classic and they're a bit of a thief. Um, and they sit between the other two. The tinker's very vulnerable to being attacked. Uh, and And I wish that the other factions had that. Just those having those three choices and the fact that you can play the Vagabond allied with people by helping them out, even to the point you command their troops around a bit, or you can be like a nasty little um, vandal and go kick over everything they've got to score your points. Uh, that's, you know, the, the thing. Like Some of the factions just feel more limited than others, but you may find a faction and fall in love with it and be like, I love this. For me, personally, I absolutely love playing the Otters. Um, from the first expansion and the moles from the third expansion, but most of all, I love playing the um, core. Sorry, COVID dynasty. Sorry, COVID conspiracy. Struggling a bit there because COVID is quite a common word at the moment. The COVID, the ravens, they are immense fun. I love them to pieces. So you do end up going down this bit of a rabbit hole where you're like, I'll buy the core game and you play the core game a bit and then you kind of go okay i want more i i want some more variety in my factions i want to go with these lizard men or, or the, the cult of lizards or or these these otters these otters look amazing you play with the otters and you go oh my god they're a bunch of thugs they're they're, <laughs> they're meant to be trading but that's not what they do they go around beating things up that's fantastic <laughs> yeah or they go oh what are the moles like and you discover they're like a bunch of like um almost you had to kind of wake up each of the uh, lords you have to like buy their sympathy and do certain tasks for them before they'll do help you out it's like a very feudal sort of kingdom thing but yeah i've got the four box expansions so that's the main game i've got um, the river folk i've got the underground and i've got the clockworks i've also got the new deck which added a whole new life in because a lot of the stuff's done with a deck of cards that determines where you can go, where you can do things, what you can craft. Just changing the deck changed the game so much. Um, you also get new maps and things. So I'm like, I'm pretty close to having everything now. It's been, and even to the point that I got custom inlays because it's made setting up and breaking down the game much easier. But I really should get onto the actual thing, which is the great 
thing about all of that is you can just get a sample of the game and you can try the core game out on Steam with a digital edition. It's also on um, Android as an app. Uh, it's just gorgeous. It's a beautiful presentation of it. It feels like playing the board game. Um, all of the main four factions are in there. The forest board is there. Um, and you can even randomize how the uh, clearings are set up. Normally, they're set in a fixed way. You can change it. And I think that is like what you'd look at to um, play it. You can also play it on Tabletop Simulator. Um, but once I had a chance to play on the root app, I was like, yes, this this is I, this might be better than playing the game physically in some ways, especially for playing with people back in the UK for me. And it handles so much of the finicky little things that you might get wrong. You know, you know what you can do. You might not know why you can do it, but you know what you can do as it highlights your options very well, which is like really wonderful. Also as a synchronous play so that you can play your turn and then just turn off your PC or turn off uh, your Android or do something else and when you are ready to go back, you will have your turn again and the game will have just moved on just like an old play-by-email game. Um, it might be a more general topic, but I was wondering how uh, everybody feels about video game adaptation of, uh, of board games. I usually really like them when they really copy the board game and just make it in a more accessible and more directly enjoyable way to play it. Obviously, it doesn't... It's not always as good as having the actual mini in hand, but I feel that a lot of board games are really nice to, to play on a, on a screen and to just be able to play with friends over a long distance without having to do complicated setup. Yeah, well, I'm just looking at my Steam collection now, and I've got Blood Bowl 2, which is the adaptation of the Blood Bowl game. I've got Cult Express. I've got um, Elder Signs Omens. Uh, um, I've even got a few, like, only um uh, uh, board game, they're electronic board games only, like Armello and Fatang, which is not a very good game, but fun for a laugh. Um, but yeah, like the adaptations of Root, Race for the Galaxy, Scythe uh, is very good. Yeah, the Terraforming Mars one is also fantastic. And I, as bare bones as it is, I love the Race for the Galaxy one. Like, that's just the AI on that is actually nicely done. So um, I don't think anything beats the tactile experience at all. I would, uh, if for me personally, if uh, someone said, hey, do you want to play this game? And they lived near enough, I would be like, hey, yeah, come on over. We'll we'll play it. I'd rather act because it's, it's a bit nicer to sit there uh, with someone and it doesn't feel so bad when they, they crush you horribly or you crush them horribly. Um, but I'd say I prefer the fully contained apps, like you say, when they faithfully recreate the game and they do it like that. And sometimes they even add extra bits and pieces, like Dire Wolf do a very good job. Um, that's really enjoyable. I, I find sometimes the tabletop simulator adaptations to be a bit more frustrating. Um, yeah, but that that's almost by design. Tabletop simulator was not supposed to be the, the massive... Um, yeah thing that it became it, it was first supposed to be a sort of just play those fun games and they, they added the modding tools and it just grew into something that is uh way too big at the moment yeah uh, the, the, yeah the engine was not made to be uh used for games like kdm um Absolutely. it's a miracle that it runs 
Yeah, yeah. It's uh, it, it doesn't feel like a good experience though either. Just like moving a piece around in Root, like they're just here, and I've got, I've got the game up, and it's like, oh, I'm just picking where to go, so I'm just gonna slip my little tinker over here. That sounds a bit filthy, actually. I do apologize. And then I'm gonna rummage around in this ruins. <laughs> oh, I found a boot. Um, that just feels good. But when playing Root on Tabletop Simulator, the act of moving the pieces around just feels awkward with a mouse i just don't yeah tabletop simulator for me is very much uh i don't have any other option let's yeah. let's use that absolutely um cur currently um millennia and i have been playing um uh seventh continent recently and since it doesn't have a, a proper tabletop simulator version uh the way that we had to play was um using a, a webcam uh to to film the the cards and just talking aloud and and following along uh it's barely uh barely worse than tabletop simulator i i actually think that it it might be slightly easier <laughs> barely worse yeah i like that yeah yeah um yeah it's when it's done right it's amazing um or a different experience. I, I think as well. Oh, uh, Mysterium is phenomenal. That's one which I forgot. That's yeah, that's really true. Enjoyable. Yeah. Um, uh, so, hmm? go on. Uh, no, I, I was just going to say that I like the fact that a lot of video games right now are trying to um, sort of imitate board games, but mm -hmm. um, e even though they're they're completely new uh, video games, like for example. Uh, Slater Spire, for example, is a, a cult battler that that is incredibly popular and really really fun. Um, it could be done as a as a proper tabletop game with a, an AI deck a la Kingdom Death, but it's um, as a video game. It it just works well, but you can feel that it's very much um, a board game at heart. And I, I like the I like this sort of. Uh, uh, Taking board games mechanic and moving them into um, into video games as they are more restricted, but allow for I think a lot of really interesting tactical things. Oh yeah, yeah. Darkest Dungeon is basically a board game. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a um, Wildermyth is basically a like automated board game role playing. Yeah, and uh, the number of games that have spawned off Slay the Spire is incredible. Um, I would say as well. I, I think one of the nice things that's happened recently is. Um, remote play on steam so you don't have to have everyone having a copy of the game you can remote play in and everyone can just play on your copy which has been a big big benefit as well as yeah tonight. that that definitely is Indeed. okay but this this just makes me want to um to play it more i'll uh, i'll have to to try it as soon as it goes on sale yep same um yeah the share screen steam stuff is fantastic so you can pass and play and um uh, it's time we get on to our last topic, which is David with Degenesis. Okay, let's talk about uh, Degenesis. It's a role-playing game. The original version version was released in 2004, but more like a indie product. And recently it was re-released in 2014 um, as the Rebirth Edition by Six More Vodka. Six More Vodka is a Berlin-based the uh, graphical design studio, they did a lot of art for white games like League of Legends and Legends of Runeterra, uh, Warner Brothers games, Marvel, Ubisoft and Rocksteady. 
So they are like state of the art concerning art. What they did is uh, in April this year, they released all hooks of the Genesis for free. You can just download them via their website. And even if you are not into like role-playing games itself, it's like the artwork is just outstanding. The Genesis takes place in 2095. The whole world collapsed. The world got hit by asteroids in 2073. Those asteroids brought something with them. They not only destroyed the world we, we knew, but they also brought something with them called the Primer, which is a spore-based life form, and, and which can manipulate the DNA of Earth-based life. Wait, wait, spore-based? Spore-based, yeah. So like orcs from 40k? Uh, a bit different. But basically, this primer takes your DNA and twists it. If you would uh, get covered in spores, you would develop certain symptoms, which might lead to your demise somewhere along the line. Um, well, what I've read is um, it it's like considered to be a menace because it infects human embryos and they become homodegenesis. They get different abilities and things, but that can end up being a huge problem for them. Yeah, exactly. You have homodegenesis, and depending on which area the, the humans are living, they have this primer has very different effects. Just an example, the old area of France, they have the pheromancers, which uh, have some kind of pheromones, and with that they can lure people into their net and make them work for them, just like human ants or bees. And then you have like something called Hybrid Spania, which is Spain. Um, you have this kind of time warping homodegenesis, which can see in the future. Spain is covered in yeah jungle, and inside this jungle you will have pockets of of warped time and stuff like that. So like if you would walk into this, you would never get out. So it's like a very unique and interesting set setting in general. That's what I really liked about the little that I've looked at it. I haven't played it yet. I've uh, read the, the book in diagonal. Uh, but what I really like is that the universe is very strange and original and special. It, it managed to really uh, pull itself away from, from most um, RPGs with its sort of a post-apocalyptic game, but with uh, magic and with this weird sort of universe. It's, it's really interesting. And um, if I remember correctly, there's a lot of uh, description of the world actually like the the different regions and everything that's um i know that the, the books are known for being absolutely uh colossal they're they're hundreds of pages long and there's like uh two of them for the base game right yeah they're like one part is the, the just the background and the other one is like the rules for the actual game um yeah but the thing about for me like which makes the genus unique is like not only the artwork but like the lore it's so deep there's so much going on behind the back lines you have like this different cults and cultures you have like i think seven different cultures which is like Germany, it's like no, known as Borja, or then you have like something like France, which is, is now Franca. So they took the old countries and twisted them by a lot. And then you have those cults, uh, which are basically like the main players of, of the Degenesis world. Just an, as an example, the Primer is like a really, is a really dangerous thing. And basically, then you have those battalions, which is like, they are like doctors and they fight against the the prime and the spores so because it's like those those uh, spores and everything they are spreading everywhere and they take precautions to so it doesn't get like really dangerous for everyone but on the other side they are like if they find some infection they will burn it down or something like that they are really extreme and so they are like other cults like the clanners 
which is like it's not a cult itself but it's a lot of different cultural things going on in the background but like they are like uh, natural enemies because the clanners they don't care if somebody might have uh, infected by the primer but the battalions for them they are yeah they need to die well so when two tribes go to war um what do the player uh play as do they all income homogenesis uh character or can they play as a as a quote-unquote pure human no they they play as humans so basically um what you have is like you have the play the group of players will consist of uh, like people from different cults and uh, just an example uh, we could have have scrappers which are basically people who search for any remaining valuable technologies and stuff like that inside of runes then you have like uh, the chroniclers which are like the law keepers when you if you want to see it that way um, there used to be something called the stream, which is like something, yeah, like the internet today. And the stream was like back in 2073, it was everywhere. But uh, during the apocalypse, the Eschaton, everything got fractured. And now you have like the so-called static stream, which are like tiny pockets of the remaining stream, with like a few servers going on. And those chroniclers that try to keep the, the, the knowledge flowing inside those pockets but like their final goal would be like to restart the stream worldwide or like inside a certain area it kind of seemed like they set the game 50 years too late <laughs> you know oddly um some of the stuff you described actually reminds me of one of my favorite role-playing games which is 7th c um which I'm not going to go into too much detail here because I'm bound to talk about it in the future, but you talk about how each part of Europe and Seventh Sea takes place in a perverted form of Europe has their own flavor of like special abilities and everything. And, and, um, that, and, and they're coming from an outside source, which I was like, that's kind of quite interesting. Um, but yeah, it's, is is the other degenesis themselves. Do they tend to be antagonists then? The homodegenesis, yes, most of yep, the time. So, okay. Like uh, sometimes there's like some kind of strange interaction, like uh, Hyperspania. You have this strange interaction where they sometimes the homodegenesis will actually help people, but you don't know what they are asking for. Like they could ask for yeah your lifetime basically. They could just do you a favor and take you with them for years or something. So in some ways you could look upon this as being a bit like the boys in a bunch of ordinary people in quotes going up against a bunch of superpowered individuals yeah exactly but basically they are they are like the evil guys if you want to t put it that way but like sometimes they won't even yeah look like that for you because like if you get caught in the pheromones of some like a pheromancer you will see him as a friend and all those other drones will be your friends and you will be like happy and uh <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's, that's, I thought so. That's why I used the word antagonist rather than outright villain. Because, uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm used to and enjoy role-playing games where the bad guys, so to speak, are, um, at least from one perspective, generally their own, not necessarily all that bad. So it does sound interesting. Um, and I do enjoy a good post-apocalyptic setting. For all its flaws, Cthulhu Tech, I still, I still love that game. <laughs> yeah, you know, by by the way it is described, and I'm actually delving, I'm still delving in the source book because I have to say there's a lot of material uh, available for free online, and it is an impressive work 
especially the campaign setting, which has its own book. It reminds me a lot of the 90s Shadowrun uh, RPG as a setting. Of course, this is a good thing, but the better thing is that it doesn't play at all like like it. Because, well, Shadowrun was a mess, and actually the, the, the cool ideas, the integrations of the degenerated uh, humans, subhumans and all, was a messy while... The Genesis actually um, creates an organic and functioning world. I have no experience with the game, but by reading what is the campaign setting, it's actually uh, very, very interesting. Um, I think the thing that's like a bit special about the system is like, you know, you have Shadowrun and uh, Dungeon Dragons where you have a lot of fights. In this game, in this game, you don't want to fight. Seriously, it's like super deadly. If you take a hit, your character will be in serious troubles. Like one or two hits are fine, but if you have like some serious injury, it will take weeks in game to heal. So most of the time, it's not like like in Dungeon Dragons where you just have a fight for fun, but rather you try to avoid it or just to plan around it. You know, like it's like more the the game itself. It's more about uh, storytelling and social interactions than than real fights. Fights will happen, but if they happen, they should be meaningful. Yeah, of course. So no for dice chuckers. Yeah, exactly. That's actually a question that I had. How crunchy is the gameplay? Because I have only read the campaign book, uh, as I said, uh, superficially. I was wondering if, if it was a game with a, a lot of different checks and different uh, dice rolls or if it was a more uh, simple and more uh, story-oriented game. Uh, basically, it's like it's a very story-oriented game, but it has like some pretty crunchy rule system behind it. It's a pool-based D6 pool system. So you have like you to take like uh, you take a bunch of d6, basically attribute plus skill combined, and then roll it, and everything above the four will be a success, and the six will be a trigger. And this, those triggers can be used for like special effects and stuff like that. But you will never chuck more than twelve dice at the same time. If your like pool exceeds twelve dice, all Dice above the 12 will be an auto success. That still seems like a fair amount of die. <laughs> yeah, sure it is. But we played Shadowrun 4 for quite a bit. And then sometimes you had like dice pool of like 20 pieces or something. Yeah, there's a reason why Shadowrun is not exactly considered as a, a, a straightforward game. Yep. I'm always of the opinion if you want to play Shadowrun, you're best off like just enjoying the Shadowrun computer games. That, yeah, they, take, they it, are. It cuts all of the mechanics well. away and you just get to enjoy the story and the setting then. Yeah, because the story and the settings are actually the strong point of Shadowrun. But yeah, The Genesis is a game that I've had on eye for a while. I need to, to try it and, and find a table, but I've been running uh, way too many RPGs already, and, and starting a new one is always uh, uh, always hard. Yeah, yeah it, it does look really fun. Uh, one thing I really like to point out is their website as well. Like, you have... Not only can you download the PDFs for free, but they have like this massive world map and you can just click on, you know, the areas, information will pop up. So you will see which characters are inside that city at the moment. And the artwork itself is already fantastic. And there's one thing which really goes against the, like the whole Degenesis uh, community going. It's like the meta plot, like the, the, the story behind everything, what's happening. 
and there's something called Jekyll's Prophecy. So all the plot of the whole game is inside a single prophecy. And people are still trying to figure out what's happening and what's like what this uh, prophecy means, which is like really interesting because you have like people finding pieces of lore or just like pictures inside the books and connect those pieces and try to figure out what will what's going to happen. So it's like a big, yeah, you know, similar to the things we are doing in Kingdom Death when we have like this, yeah, you know, not exactly clear storytelling pieces small piece pieces of lore we can find and then connect the dots yeah yeah it sounds very interesting <laughs> i would be looking into it more if it wasn't the fact that i'm already backlogged so hard i've got complete masks of Naliatep to run through and then the enemy within campaign to run through because it's just been re-released and i bought the special editions and then i've got the void to do um which is a i'll talk about that at some point actually quite quite good the genesis was making me think of it which it says good things about the genesis as a concept you know it's it sounds like one of those games it's like the um was it um tales of the flood tales of the loop which i'm like oh i really i really want to look at these but if i do i'm going to want everything and i'm going to want physical copies and then i'm going to be fed up with running what i'm running and want to play that instead and it's all going to suffer so i'm going to have to put a note in my diary a couple of years from now to say all right take a look at the genesis you've got the space yeah i know that feeling (laughs) yeah too many games that's the curse of the role player um too many games not enough times not enough tables curse of the lifetime gm at one time i had like nearly all hardcover releases of pathfinder 1.0 so it like <laughs> it took away a lot of space as well. <laughs> yeah. The the curse of the GM is more having a group of players interested in playing on one game, reading the entire setting book, the entire rule book, making a uh, prepping a campaign or uh, at least a start scenario and then having that group just failing to play a single game. Uh, I've I've never had that. No, I just have the curse of always a GM never a player, but in contrast to that, I am a nightmare to have as a player. The few times I have been, everyone who's GM says, you're far too much work, Finn. And, and I'm like, just let my character do what they want to do, and and I will be no problem to your plot. But if you don't let me play a halfling rock star or a, um, a noble troll or, you know, whatever else silly little goal I've set myself, then I'm, I'm going to be, like, awkward. I can't help it. I apologize. So, yeah. Um, that'd, that'd be gonna be fun to talk about role playing some point in the future in some detail. It it definitely will. Uh, we might actually make a, a full um a full team for one episode because I feel like all of us have uh, good experiences to share. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, uh, we have run to time, I'm afraid, guys. So uh, unless anyone has any final things they'd like to say, then we're gonna wrap up for this episode. Seems like a good idea. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Well, so. Thank you very much for listening. This has been the Last Standee podcast. Uh, I have been your host, Fen, and I have been joined here by the team, which is, and would everyone like to say their names and say goodbye? Uh, Alexis, and goodbye. Yeah, Alessio, and arrivederci. Okay, à la prochaine. <laughs> um, yeah, this is David, and goodbye. See you next time. Yeah, we'll see you all next time. <laughs>